Henry Ford once said, rather provocatively, the only history that is worth a tinkerer's damn is the history that we make today. Interesting. Maybe Henry Ford was on to something when it comes to innovation and technology. He certainly was. But when it comes to matters of eternal life and hope for the future and confidence spiritually, Henry Ford's advice is, to quote Henry Ford, bunk. Any thinking Christian loves history. As Christians, we love history, in particular, in particular, redemptive history, because it is in history where Jesus accomplishes redemption for us. That He comes into this world, real time, real place, historic figure, and acts. He accomplishes redemption for us, and that ends up mattering today, and that ends up mattering for eternity into the future. Our confidence about the future, what's on the other side of the grave, is in fact tied to history. The historic life, death, and bodily historic resurrection of Jesus. Christians love the topic of history. We love redemptive history because in so many ways it's always been about that. In anticipation of his coming, it was about history moving forward to that event. Then it happens. Then history after is all about his return that will come in light of what he's accomplished in history. And so in so many ways, Christianity is all about history. Now, I won't lie. Sometimes it's a bit of work. It's a bit of hard work to say, okay, now we're going to learn more about history so that we can appreciate what God has done for us, so that we can worship Him appropriately, so that we can live and face tomorrow with hope and confidence. Sometimes it's work. It's, it's work to figure out how do we, as one um, author put it, how do we stand between these two worlds, the world that we live in and the world of ancient history, and to show the significance and relevance of the whole thing without failing to do justice to what actually happened then. And so in so many ways, that's my job. I want to make it seem easy, but it's hard. Today we're going to learn about history. We're going to see Jesus in action. And Jesus in action in the fourth chapter of Matthew's gospel account, acting in history, but doing so in a way that fulfills prophetic promise, doing so in a way that shows that he is who he claimed to be, doing so in a way that should cause you and should cause all of us to have a grounded hope in the here and now and to be encouraged and to be able to face tomorrow. And so this morning what we'll do is we'll look at Jesus in action, chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. We're about to learn more history. And then when we're done with this rather short section, we are going to take some time at the end today to talk a little bit about the reality of repentance and elaborate on that because it's something that Jesus says here and it's actually something really important for us. Ready? Okay, here we go. Let's go ahead and look at verse 12 uh, together if you would. We won't pre-read it. We'll work on it together as we go. It says in verse 12, Now now when he uh, heard, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. 
And for now, let's just acknowledge the fact that that's an important historical figure for Matthew as he's explaining the gospel account. There's a strategic thing that happens, and so then something else happens as this drama is unfolding. John the Baptist is arrested. Uh, we'll learn more about him in chapter 11, but we're going to leave him from, for now. He's arrested, and that is a turning point, a time marker. Jesus is going to head to Galilee at that particular point in time. Okay? So he's going to leave Jerusalem. He's going to leave the more public life and, and things that are going on. They're not in the wilderness anymore. He's going to relocate home base, if you will, uh, not, to na- not, uh, not na- back to Nazareth, but all the way up to Galilee. And we're going to learn about Galilee because Galilee is important when it comes to this whole matter, uh, even as it would relate to us. Uh, But we'll do that in just a moment. Let's keep reading in verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. So Nazareth, we know, most of us know, that's where he grew up. So he's leaving Nazareth, which is also in the north, north of Jerusalem. Uh, He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Not words I use in ordinary, everyday speech. But we'll talk more about what makes it significant in a little while. And it actually relates to people like us. So, Nazareth, pretty far away from Jerusalem. But now he's going to go even further. And he's going to go all the way up to the north into Galilee or into Capernaum. And you might be thinking to yourself, like I did for a long time, before I cared much about geography and trying to figure things out. Did he go to Galilee or did he go to Capernaum? Well, he went to both because Galilee is the region and Capernaum is the actual town that's on the Sea of Galilee. So he's in Galilee if he's in Capernaum, okay? So it's not that complicated uh, to have that going on. Even today, when you talk to people who live in Israel sometimes, they will talk about going up to the Galilee, And they're talking about the region. They're not talking about a town. They're not necessarily talking about the the sea. We're going to go up to and see the Galilee. We're going to see the region. I even checked yesterday on touristisrael.com because they have an article on the Galilee. It's a region with all kinds of different towns in it. It said this, by the way, since I took the time to look it up, I figured I'll quote it. The Galilee makes up much of the north of Israel, totaling one-third of the whole country, divided into three areas, the Lower Galilee, Upper Galilee, and Western Galilee. You heard it here, folks, touristisrael.com. It's trying to get you thinking in terms of the geography a little bit. Travel up there, and I should also say Sea of Galilee. Um, it's, if I recall correctly, I didn't look this up. It's about 14 miles by seven miles ish, maybe 13 miles by seven. So it's not huge. It's big as far as Nebraska lakes go, um, but that's not saying a whole lot. It's not huge. It's called a sea. I may talk more about this when we get to the the calming of the sea later. But it's called the sea, even for good reason, because of the way the the geography is and the mountain structure and the hill country and the way the winds blow. That in a, a matter of moments, it can act more like a sea than a lake. Um, I've body surfed on the Sea of Galilee. I kid you not. Uh, and it's usually pretty hard to body surf on a lake. Um, but the waves can get really big, okay? So he's up there in Capernaum, which is right there on the northwest side, uh, and we'll see him doing a lot of ministry there. Now, it becomes significant for other reasons. 
Let me give you another good quotation, not from touristisrael.com, um, but from a, a good Isaiah commentary. And this is important history to know because it'll make our passage more relevant. The geographic location of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali indicates that the author is referring to the northern part of Galilee. We already talked about that. The area of Israel first humbled by foreign military invasions. So if you're going to invade, that's a key place to invade, okay? Uh, if you go there today, you're going to go and, and there's the border to Lebanon. And then over here, you go a little further, there's the border of Syria. And so it, it's, a, it's a soft spot for invaders. It's a dangerous place, okay? And that actually becomes important when we get further in our text regarding the promise that's made in Isaiah when he quotes Isaiah. So it's a, it's a dangerous spot. It's a weak point militarily. Frequent invasions there. But then there's also another interesting point. That commentary goes on to say, and the region most influenced by foreign cultures and religions. So if you think faithfulness in Israel, at least externally, you'd think Jerusalem. You know, even, even today, people talk about the old city being conservative, um, whereas other places are not so conservative. It's, it's, it's the place where you go and you're really serious about religion and serious about God. And if you're a Jewish person, uh, Tel Aviv liberal, um, you know, gay destination vacations, they kind of wear it on their sleeve, okay? It's a great place to go for couples. Um, old city Jerusalem, not that, and that's just today. Well, think in terms of you're a border town or a border region, the northern border, and you have these other people believing other religions, and they're coming in, and you're listening to them, and you're swapping ideas, and it's a place, it's a, it's a, it's a theologically more of a diverse, um, not a faithful kind of breeding ground, if you will. Prone to wandering into false religion, uh, those up in that region are. That becomes important. I know I'm giving you lots of information, but it actually becomes important when we hear the promise of Isaiah regarding what's going to happen in this place by Jesus Messiah. It helps us to understand why he's there. Okay? So I wanted to make an extra note. I was reviewing my notes last night, and so I used my... um, on my iPad, I was dictating, uh, I was speaking and having it record what I wanted to say. So I, I said, in other words, so Jesus is going to set up shop where the people who are to worship at one tree God are so easily influenced by paganism. <laughs> I said, one true God. <laughs> so Jesus just kind of makes the point in an ironic way. It's the one tree God, yeah. So what I wanted to say was, he's going to set up shop where it, oftentimes the people who are supposed to worship the one true God, they're in Israel after all, are influenced by paganism and they're also put in very dangerous places. Okay, They're influenced by those who want to worship the tree gods, uh, according to Siri anyway. Now we get to the reason he's there. So with all of that going on in our minds, let's look at verse 14, and we're going to see the reason he's in that place that we've been describing. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, this is Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, might be fulfilled. 
Okay, this is, this is by design. We're, we're, we're having something fulfilled here. Jesus isn't just making this up as he goes. All of this is strategic, by design. History, redemptive history is unfolding, and it's unfolding according to plan and purpose. Okay? Then we have the quotation. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles... The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, to them a light has dawned. Fulfillment, design, good news, positive. In darkness, right? Metaphor, spiritual darkness. And now there's light and there's no mistaking that Jesus showing up and being there. He is the light that was prophesied to come and to help these people in their dangerous place, prone to wonder place, influenced by paganism place. He comes to that place to help those people. He's the one. He's the one. Now I have to admit to you, when I hear Isaiah 9, I don't think of things like Naphtali. Okay? I might for the next week or so, but I won't ongoingly. You probably won't either. Um, I'm the kind of person that likes to, if you ask me a question about something in the Bible, I at least want to have at least one passage in my mind. I can get there and move my way around. And if you say, you know, fall of Satan, I think, okay, Ezekiel 20, I think it's 28, Isaiah 14, and, and then we can make some traction. I want to have text to explain things. Or, or if you say to me, um, you know, Romans 8, oh, I know what's in Romans 8. Um, uh, Romans 1 to 5, I know what that's about. And uh, I, I encourage people to try to think this way, to make our way around. If you tell me Isaiah 9, I'm thinking what? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, right? I'm thinking Christmas. I, I'm in the spirit, right? This is wonderful, in the holiday spirit. Uh, this, is, this is Christmas in February. This is wonderful. Um, but that's Isaiah 9, messianic prophecy. But, but that's Isaiah 9, 6, these familiar words. And, and I am going somewhere, somewhere with this, so just hang in there. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his uh, name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it uh, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's what I'm thinking. Messianic prophecy. I'm not thinking of our text so much but our text is important for other reasons and it is messianic and it's actually related to the one who can come and rule and reign forever on David's throne the prince of peace now, just hang in there okay lots of explaining thinking sorting things out why this is important for him to be there Galilee region what's this about I would say, well, here's what it's about. If you want to understand Matthew 4, you have to understand the... That, if that's the thing, you have to understand the thing behind the thing, and that's Isaiah 9, Messianic prophecy. But I want to get more complicated now. To understand the thing, Jesus... Sorry to refer to Jesus as a thing. Jesus' redemptive work, okay? The thing, Matthew 4. Now, the thing behind the thing is Isaiah 9, fulfillment of prophecy... But for you to appreciate it, and here's what, I'll raise my voice and, and do anything I can to get you thinking about this, because there is a good aha moment, we're just not there yet. 
You have to understand the thing and then the thing behind the thing and then you need to understand the thing behind the thing behind the thing. This won't be a candidating sermon when I'm looking for another church to go to, I promise. But it's actually important because it's in the Bible and there's a good thing to learn here. So keep, hang in there, folks. If you take the time to learn about this Naphtali place, this Galilee region in the Old Testament, and what got them in the bad predicament they're in, where it's danger zone high risk, and all the paganism kind of stuff, if you look at the thing behind the thing behind the thing, it's Israel's corrupt, perverse king who leads Israel in corrupt perversity, which leads God to judge them, which leads to Assyrian captivity. Okay? And here's why it's important. I'm going to give you the preview. For there to be fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, for there to be the everlasting, forever, enjoyable, peaceful kingdom, you need a different king. You got to break the cycle. Okay? So when Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 9, he's talking about one day, finally, there will be one who can do this. Because if we look back to our History, it's been one bad king after another bad king after another bad king, and the cycle just keeps happening. They lead in immorality themselves, and then they lead the people in immorality and paganism, and God brings judgment, and then you have captivity. Until there is a perfect king, there cannot be fulfillment of the Davidic covenant where there's ruling and reigning forever in righteousness. That's a long big thing to think about. We're talking about the thing behind the thing behind the thing. If you would, either listen or look up 2 Kings chapter 15. 2 Kings 15 verse 29 connects dots for us. What does this have to do with our life? We have to have somebody break the cycle. We need a better representative. We need a faithful representative or there can't be the fulfillment of the promises. Jesus is the dot connector. Second Kings chapter 15 verse 29 says... Ready for some good names? Um, if you're expecting a child, be careful about choosing the name. Sometimes it's hard to figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Um, you don't want to be that person. Uh, <laughs> Verse 29, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath, ready? Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijan, Abel Beth Makaka. Janahah, Janoah, there we go, Janoah, Kedesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria, 732 BC. Huh, wonder why that happened. 
Well, context tells us why it happened. If you look then at verses 27 and 28, in 27 we see this Pekah, son of Ramaliah, began to reign over Israel. So, so Pekah is the one reigning over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. But look at verse 28. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. This is a real long way around me trying to help you understand and see the thing, important Jesus. There's a thing behind the thing, the messianic prophecy of Isaiah, and the thing behind the thing, behind the thing, Israel's history. Bad, corrupt representatives, bad, corrupt kings do bad, corrupt, idolatrous, idolatrous things. And then they lead the people into idolatry. The Lord is not pleased. The Lord brings judgment, leading to things like captivity and exile. How in the world can this dangerous border town that's prone to invasion How can this dangerous border town that's prone to paganism, how could there ever be hope for those people? Hope that would be lasting hope, that would be true hope, irreversible hope, the kind spoken of in Isaiah 9, not in 1 and 2, but in 6 and following, where there would be a king who would rule and reign perfectly. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 9, 7. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The kings have ruled and they've ruled with unrighteousness. They've not upheld God's law. They've been breakers of God's law. They've been unrighteous kings, unrighteous kings, unrighteous kings, unrighteous kings. And we just learned earlier that Jesus shows up on the scene totally different as a representative. And he says, I'm going to do the right things and I'm going to do the right things. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to be the law upholder. I'm going to be the one and the only one who is fit to represent the people in the good, appropriate way as the ultimate forever ruling, reigning king leading the people not into sin like all the other ones did, but leading the people into righteousness. You might be thinking, why didn't you just tell us that? Well, sometimes it takes a while. Those are the dots that are meant to be connected. Okay? Bad influence from outsiders, bad influence from insiders, And the cycle just goes on and on and on and on until light shines in darkness. Oppressed by outsiders, let down by their own, and now the great light shines for those in darkness. I think another striking feature of our text is the fact that he calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. One commentator put it this way. It is a negative title that shows how pervasive non-Hebrew people and cultures were in the area. It could be he's talking about actual Gentiles because Jesus is the Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile 
Isaiah talks about salvation of Gentiles. But it's interesting, he may actually just be using that label for the Jews. Galilee of the godless. Galilee of the Gentiles. It's not a compliment, it's an insult. It is such a bad place. But those people need light. They need a savior. They need a deliverer. They need not an oppressor, sinful king. They need a good, faithful, providing king. It has to be Jesus. He has to be the one. That's no doubt in my mind why it says he went there to fulfill what Isaiah promised. Finally, finally in this God-forsaken, God-awful place, if you will, this part of Israel, light comes. Provision comes. Then it says in verse 16, now we're back on track, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Even the language that he uses there in the original text, that, that, that's where they, they, they live and breathe and have their being in darkness. Bad place for bad people. Jesus comes as the good savior for bad people and to give them light and deliverance. It reminds me again, I'll keep taking you back to Matthew one twenty one. He came to save his people from their sins. If they were good, they wouldn't need to be saved. They would just need maybe better instructions. No, they're bad. And so he has to do the work and save them. If you're essentially good, you don't need that. And then our final verse for today. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about repentance. But our final verse for today is verse 17 where it says, From that time, again another strategic marker, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if that sounds familiar, it should. Right? Jesus is saying the same thing that who said? That's what John the Baptist said in chapter 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus will go on preaching this. So it's important. Maybe we should first be Captain Obvious here and point out the obvious. He comes preaching. He comes preaching. Preaching carries with it um, authority. He comes proclaiming something. You preach something that is, that is authoritative, that is, that is true, that is, is sometimes bad news, sometimes good news, but it's important news. And so Jesus comes, like John the Baptist, pre- proclaiming something. I have an important announcement. And John the Baptist, as God's prophet, it was an important announcement, a true important announcement from God with authority. And now Jesus, same kind of thing. Different person, no doubt, but same kind of thing. Get ready! And think of it in these terms. Please. This assumes that the people aren't ready. This assumes that people are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Because if they were fit for the kingdom of heaven, he wouldn't be saying what he's saying. Repent! It's a call for change. Literally, it means change your mind, and we'll talk about that. But this is an important one because it's still relevant for us. It's always been relevant, always will be relevant. He didn't seek out all of the bad people. 
There were all different kinds of people. Yes, the ones who were on the naughty list, no doubt. But this is what he's going to preach to everybody. This is what John the Baptist preached to everybody. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're not ready. I would stretch it out, knowing the rest of the Bible. No one is naturally ready for the kingdom. No one is naturally ready for heaven. No one is naturally ready to meet God. Apart from the righteousness of Christ. Apart from being saved by another. So it's no doubt, no wonder why he's preaching what he's preaching. No one's naturally ready. No one's naturally fit. It's time to repent. See your need for a Messiah. Now let's talk just briefly about repentance because I want to do so in a little bit more detail in a little bit. But again, the basic word means change your mind. Well, what would that look like for people? Well, change your mind about God maybe. Maybe you thought, you know, I'm not as bad as those other people. I'm not as bad, not as, bad as uh, other people I know. And, and God will accept me. Well, no, you better change your mind about God if he requires, we're going to get this in the Sermon on the Mount, absolute perfect righteousness. Be perfect, Jesus is going to say. We might need to change our mind about God. Because I wasn't really sure that he, he required that to enter the kingdom of heaven. We might have to change our minds about who we are. You know what? I'm not perfect. I'm not fit for the kingdom. I've got to change my mind about who I am. I might need to change my mind about who Jesus is. Not just the chump kid from Nazareth whose dad was a carpenter and there's a questionable story about him. Is he the one, the fulfilling one? Is he the long-awaited, anticipated, good, providing, atoning Messiah? I've got to think differently about him. I've got to think differently maybe about other people. And on the list could go, but it's a, it's a radical call in your face, yes. And it is saying something about you isn't right. On a spiritual level, you're not fit. That's a heavy, that's a heavy reality. Uh, it's, it's a heavy reality we all face. The prerequisite for heaven is not having a funeral. The prerequisite for heaven is, Jesus is going to go on to say, absolute perfection, which none of us has. No sin, no unrighteousness, which none of us has, apart from being united to Him by faith. So it's a relevant message for us today. And that's what he will go on to preach as a hallmark of his ministry will be this. It's interesting though, he'll go on to then talk about in chapter 4, the gospel of the kingdom. It's not a gospel of the kingdom if I'm not fit, but if I am fit because of Christ, it's actually good news. Oh yeah, I'm ready for the kingdom because I'm rightly attached to the king. So it, it, it becomes good. Okay, tough text, important text, historic text. He's the one. He doesn't come for good people. He comes for bad people. And if he came for people who were that bad, these are wrong side of the tracks, Galileans, he could take care of my problems and he could take care of your problems. Okay. So let's end our text on that. It'll be the shortest sermon ever preached in the history of Omaha Bible Church. Um, but I was 
thoughtfully thinking of you, because if we included the next section, then it would be the longest sermon ever in the history of Omaha Bible Church. What's, what's a person to do? So, next time we're going to look at the recruiting of the disciples, still in the area, still important. Um, but for now, I at least want to take a few minutes and talk about repentance because it's an important question. Okay, What is repentance? What isn't repentance? And why is it so important? It's so important because it's, it's characteristic of Jesus' ministry. Um, it's characteristic of John's ministry. It's characteristic of Old Testament prophets. It's characteristic of uh, New Testament ministry. The Apostle Peter, when he preaches his gospel sermon, he leads with repent. So it's all over the place. Okay? And there are, I want to explain this by saying there are basically three, three big views of repentance. Okay? And the first one, I think, is patently wrong and dangerous. And the other two, you could hold one or the two, and we can still be friends. Okay? Uh, theologically. Uh, because there's some diversity amongst believers in how they would understand it. But I think this could really be helpful to you. Okay? So, if, first view, wrong view. If repentance means a change of behavior, and it's a prerequisite for salvation you're in trouble. Bad view. Okay? If it's a change of behavior and it's a prerequisite for justification, let's say. You, you, that view is not, that, that's not... I'm going to show you it's not biblical, but it's certainly not Protestant. Um, it's not helpful. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, even think of how confusing it would have been when the Latin Vulgate didn't translate this word, repent. It translates the word from Latin, do penance. And now you say, oh, now I understand. Now I understand Roman Catholicism better. Do penance. Do these penitent actions that show you're sorry, but now you're doing the right thing, and then God will accept you. That's defining, that's, that's similar to when Protestants say repentance is a change of behavior, and it's a prerequisite for salvation. Here's why it can't be true. Romans 4, 5. Romans 4, 5. Romans 4, 5 says God justifies what kind of people? The ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. So the classic Protestant doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone, for shorthand we call it sola fide, faith alone, is tied to Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. God doesn't justify godly people. He justifies ungodly people. But if you've changed your behavior and it's gone from bad to good, you're not an ungodly person. You're a godly person. Not helpful. Don't, don't be that guy. Don't be that person. I'll admit to you, I've been that person before. It's been a long time, but I've been that person before. Because I want people to do the right thing. And I was confused about the meaning of repentance. The word repent, metanoia, Greek word, change mind. Not change behavior in order to be justified. That's, that's Romanish. Um, is that okay? You follow me so far? Okay. Don't, don't, don't do that. You just deny justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Next view. Okay? Not my view, but the next view. Might be yours. If it's yours, you're a good person. I like you. <laughs> 
This would be with, with, within Reformation theology. This is a common view. It might be the right view. It's just not my view. Repentance is a change of behavior that comes as a result of salvation. Comes as a result of justification. Okay? So uh, now that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, you should be repenting. Repenting. You should be avoiding sin. You should be doing the right thing. Okay? That, that's true theologically. I believe that to be true. Okay? So if you want repentance to be in change of behavior, just don't have it be a prerequisite for justification. Have it be the fruit of justification, the fruit of the gospel. Okay? And that's a pretty common view. Lots of authors I like talk about it in those terms. I have friends who talk about it in those terms. It might be how you talk about it. Let's get matching t-shirts and go on vacation. It'll all be fine. Okay? The first view comes under the anathema of Galatians chapter 1 of adding works to faith for justification. So that's why that's an out-of-bounds view. The second view is not an out-of-bounds view. Third view, which would be my view, maybe I'll change someday, would be repentance is change of mind, metanoia, that's what the word means. Look it up in a Greek dictionary. And it's a prerequisite for salvation. It seems like Peter has it as a prerequisite for salvation in his gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. So, therefore, it's not the same as faith, but it's the complement to faith. It's the other side of the coin. Because if I'm going to trust in Jesus, well, I'm believing the right thing about him. And I used to not believe the right thing about him. I'm repenting of thinking he was just a human being. I'm repenting of thinking he met you halfway. I'm repenting of thinking he was only a good moral teacher. I'm changing my mind from thinking in non-biblical terms about Jesus to thinking in biblical terms about Jesus. So in order for me to believe in Jesus, I, I have to repent of wrong thinking. Okay? Does that make any sense? It just goes hand in hand. If I'm going to believe in Jesus that he is the great I am, well, I have to go from before when I didn't think he was the great I am. And now I think he is the great I am. So I have a change of mind about Jesus. So I think they go, they go hand in hand. So I can have a strict definition of the word and I can have it be a prerequisite for salvation, but it's not a bunch of things you do. Okay? And by the way, the Apostle Paul even says that it's granted to you to repent. So it all comes from God ultimately. Now, all done, all said. That's why I keep stressing and emphasizing it's a change of mind and I explain what I mean because it, it's relevant to faith. Now, the pushback is this. But I want people to obey and I want people to do the right thing and I'm with you. I'm totally with you. That's why there's another category in the Bible that we can utilize, that we need to utilize. Listen to these words from John the Baptist and from the Apostle Paul. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3.8 Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The Apostle Paul in Acts 26.20 Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. There's the obedience, but it's a different category. Deeds keeping with repentance. Complementing your repentance. So if you've truly changed your mind about who Jesus is, Then the call is, you know what? Your behavior should reflect different thinking about Jesus. 
but it's not a prerequisite for salvation. It's fruit. It's result. It comes as a, as a consequence. So don't get, don't, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying Christians can act however they want to act. But, uh, but, but we can keep our categories and keep our sanity and say it's not a prerequisite for salvation if you mean clean up your life. But it is a prerequisite for salvation if it means you have to now think the right thing about Jesus and stop thinking the wrong thing. And now I want you to obey. I want you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay? This is sort of like keeping the theology of Romans 6, which is about obedience, in Romans 6 and not putting it in Romans 1 to 5. Then we're under the Galatian heresy. You didn't think you were going to get a theology lecture today, did you? In the end, for Christ to receive all of the glory and honor and exaltation, salvation is all of him. The just for the unjust. The righteous to bring us to God, to save us. So don't dilute that by adding works to faith because it doesn't match Romans 4 verse 5. It doesn't match your profession of being a Protestant. Um, It doesn't match the Reformation tradition that we're a part of. Um, And it doesn't give Christ the kind of glory we would want him to receive. Hope that's helpful. My encouragement to you is, If you're thinking wrongly about Jesus and not trusting in him, you should repent and trust in Jesus. And then my advice to you and exhortation to you is, as a Christian, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Obey because you're united to him by faith. Make sense? Not that complicated. Now you're good missionaries. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men and women and boys and girls. Thank you for the, the complexity of spiritual realities and for the simplicity of spiritual realities. May we be the kind of people that would boast in Christ and not in ourselves and that we would call people to trust in Christ, not in something else, for the glory of Christ and for the good of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.